Hello and welcome to the Baseball Wisconsin Podcast. I am your host, Tim Gotzler. Now, today's episode, inning one of game four, you're going to want to be the away team. You're going to want to swing first. You want to get on the board as early and as often as possible. Because today's guest is a minor, one of the minor league hitting coaches in the Colorado Rockies organization, Trevor Burmeister. Now, Burm, if you've been following his career, you follow him on social media, you know his ties from Verona High School to Madison College to lacrosse uh, and making his way, you know, into professional baseball right now has been incredible. And uh, still a very, really young coach and has just ascended in the game. But like when I went in this episode with him is I want to talk offense, offense and hitting. And we talk about, you know, what he's doing at his level, how it can be scaled down to maybe the high school level, um, some of the, his favorite drills. Uh, two-strike approach. I mean, there's just so much here. Again, if you're an offensive guy, and if you know Berm, I just let him go. I mean, he he, he loves to share. The guy is an, an absolute animal when it comes to this stuff. He's a constant learner. He's going to share at the end of the episode some of his favorite resources. He's very active on social media and is constantly creating and then sharing content, which, you know, in 2022 and beyond is going to be, you know, it is, is, is a very popular medium for um, you know, advancing your coaching career and also for professional development. So just a quick reminder to subscribe and share and buckle in because if you like offense and you want to get your hitters ready to go for this spring, this is the episode. And without further ado, minor league hitting instructor for the Colorado Rockies, Trevor Burmeister. Hey, Burm, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for jumping on. Well, hey, for the listeners, just give us some background. Um, you know, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And, and tell us about your baseball career. I am a uh, Wisconsin native. So I grew up in Verona, Wisconsin, just outside of Verona, uh, out in the country with um, just me and my brother. I uh, went to Verona High School um, and uh, played uh, football and baseball. And uh, it's kind of unique because at the time I I think it kind of fit with my my temperament I was uh, I, I love football and I was kind of a feisty kid but um as as the years went on I was a five foot ten quarterback that couldn't move like Russell Wilson so I kind of figured out that football was probably not going to be my route um and kind of got consumed with the baseball realm and um lucky for me too baseball has always been a huge part of my family um my dad coached me through the youth stages um you know, you look at my family history, it kind of goes really far back in terms of baseball being a major part of our lives. So, um, but I was recruited really late. Um, I got recruited actually after my senior year at Verona um, by Coach Davenport at Madison College, which is where I went and spent my first two years. Um, great opportunity for me. I was like most kids that had, you know, dreams and aspirations of trying to play at the Division One level and play the game as long as I can. Of course, I want to be a professional baseball player, um, you know, and Madison College was kind of that outlet to kind of give me that second chance because, you know, the first go around of the high school recruiting, I just wasn't getting the interest. And back then it was Legion baseball was a big deal. And, you know, I didn't know much about like the hitters and the GRBs and the travel baseball landscape that's turned into such a major recruiting hub when it comes to giving kids opportunities. So I played Legion ball and you know, got in the recruiting process really late, but I was really thankful that Coach D gave me that opportunity. Um, played two years at Madison College, learned a ton. Um, you know, I being in the college background, you know, 
not only as a player, but as a coach, a lot of players, you know, leave high school and they go to their colleges. And, you know, a lot of those guys are typically some of the better players on their high school programs. And, you know, you walk in to a place even like Madison College, which is a very good school with a very good reputation. From day one, you're looking around, you're like, wow, I got a lot of work to do, <laughs> you know, and um, that was a good thing for me. And Coach Davenport is a brutally honest person. And he told me that from the get go. So it just became like this, this educational platform. And um, I think that's really where my love for baseball exploded um, is because of the details and all the things that we were learning. And, you know, as the years went on, um, the Division One opportunities really were not coming for me. And I think a lot of that had to do just physically what I was capable of doing. I wasn't like a lot of the guys that I was playing next to. Um, so I just looked for the next best option. And the next best option was uh, UW, UW Lacrosse with uh, Chris Schwarz and Scott Gillitzer. Uh, my brother had previously gone to the college, not as a baseball player, but as a student. So I was very familiar with the area. Um, went there, played there for two years. Uh, we had a lot of success. You know, winning was important to me. You know, I just came from Madison College and we went to two World Series. So I didn't want to go to a school that didn't have a winning culture. And at the time, and even now, I mean, lacrosse is still a very good program. Um, I went into that program in my junior year right away. We broke a school record in wins, got to a regional. Uh, it was just a great, great fit. And um, played two years there. And then, you know, I got realistic with myself with the pro aspirations, I knew that probably was not going to happen towards the tail end of my junior year. And everything started to transition into like this desire to want to get into coaching. And I didn't know if it was going to be at the high school level or if it was going to be at the college level, but I was very fortunate that when my playing career um, ended, it, uh, there was an opening within the UW lacrosse coaching staff and Chris Schwartz welcomed me in and I got my first start. And that's, one of the toughest things for guys that want to get into coaching is getting your first opportunity. And I was just lucky enough that it kind of fell right into my lap and uh, Shores allowed me to jump on board and, and do that. So yeah, that was my playing career that kind of led into the coaching career. Well, thanks for going through that. I think, you know, I got to take you back to, you know, you're done playing at lacrosse and now you're a student assistant. And I think something that a lot of us have experienced is now you're trying to quote unquote coach the guys, your buddies, the guys you've played with. <laughs> And I know everybody's kind of chuckling that listens to this because a lot of us went that route. So take us back to that time. Like, how did you make that separation from we're hanging out on a Friday night to, hey, I'm running the drills on Monday morning? Well, I guess part of it of what helped is that, you know, I was a very boring person <laughs> when it came to my choices. Like I was a borderline hermit. You know, I I, uh, I had friends and for sure we hung out and the way that I really approached it, because I actually thought about that right away is there's, there's two things. One, I really grasped onto the young guys. Um, maybe guys that I just played with one year with or the incoming guys They had no idea who I was. And I started with them and I really started to like coach them and, and try to teach them. And what ended up happening is like, as I was doing that, the guys that I had played with or I had more relationships with, they started to see it and they started to hear the things that were coming out of my mouth. And that leads into the second point of what I think really helped me was everything I learned from Madison College. I mean, I was lucky enough to go from two different environments. Like 
Madison College is just a pure educational, you know, it's not a one size fits all. It looks at each guy as an individual. And I got to hear all these different conversations that were happening, not only Coach Davenport talking to me, but how he was communicating and coaching and teaching other guys too. And when I went into lacrosse, I'm still a player at that time. You know, it's not my job to teach guys how to do certain things, but it's a different program, a different philosophy. They do things differently. But I had all of these things in my pocket of, that I learned from Madison that I took with me. That stuff was what started to come out of my mouth. You know, and that's what I started to teach when I actually got into coaching. And so, and even for the guys that I played with, they had never heard that stuff before. So they're like, what was that? Like, you know, what are you saying? You know, so like slowly but surely, um, it kind of morphed into like, I started to get the buy-in even from the guys that I have relationships with because they were hearing things they'd never hear occurred before. Um, so I think I owe a lot to making that transition easier for myself with what I learned from Madison and being able to like take that out and start using it because man, I learned when I got, when I became a student assistant lacrosse, I was primarily with the outfielders, but I was like assisting Scott Gillitzer with the, the hitters as well. But that was his realm, you know, and he was in charge and was basically, hey, what do you want me to do with the guys? Um, but the outfielders were mine. And Schwarz, I owe a lot to him. He just basically said, like, you come up with a plan, you be organized, you do whatever you want with them. And that's where I really got to kind of run forward with that stuff that I had learned. Because Madison, it's like, it's not just hitting fly balls, outfielders. It was very, very detail oriented. And those details was, was what I really used to be like, Hey, you know, that maybe this guy does have some stuff that can really help me, you know, and there, there were moments and I won't name names, but I'll just tell a quick story. Um, one guy that I played, uh, that would have been my third year. He, he gray shirt his first year. Um, and then I played one year with him and then his third year was my first year coaching a little standoffish at first. Right. And it was kind of like one of those guys where the devil's advocate, if something came out of my mouth, like he always had to question it. And I knew I had the group and this was probably the winter time going into the spring when um, one of our guys, one of our outfielders who was the dude of the team, like everybody knew, like he was the guy that kind of got the train rolling. He spoke up and said, stop questioning what he has to say, what he has to say all the time and start listening to him. When he said that, I knew I had them. You know, and I knew I was actually going somewhere with them, but it, it it's a difficult process for sure. Um, you know, but you just have to be very calculated with how you go about it. Luckily enough, that was a thought that went through my head of, I'm not just going to start telling these guys what to do. I'm going to select the right people. I have new information, share the new information and slowly let it develop to where it can become something productive. So you're, you're on staff at lacrosse. And you've made a few different stops between then and where you're at now. So what are those stops? And maybe dig into each stop. Like what lessons did you learn, you know, yourself as a leader and a coach, but maybe even specific, like to the position groups, if it's outfield or, or on the offensive side. Well, after lacrosse, um, I kind of knew I fell in love with the, the college coaching gig. I really love recruiting. Um, so I wanted to stay in college baseball and I knew that, you know, a really good route to go if you're going to be in college baseball is to get your master's. And because that just opens up other opportunities in terms of financially, you know, being able to help yourself. 
And I decided it was kind of, I was starting to search around and look around. And then Gillitzer actually came up to me. He was on a recruiting trip. I'm not sure where he was, but he said, Hey, I just heard that uh, Minnesota Duluth is looking for a graduate assistant. Um, you know, if you would have interest, you know, you should reach out. And I did. I've always been, and this is kind of important in terms of the stops. I've never been the guy to just jump ship and just go to the next school. Every decision I make is incredibly calculated um, to make sure that the environment's right. I know what I'm walking into. There's a chance to have success, you know, and Minnesota Duluth at the time when I started doing my research, they had a boatload of seniors coming back. They just had a lot of success offensively the previous year. And I knew when I started going through the roster and like the guys that I was going to be dealing with, I was like, man, this could be a really good team. And then on top of that, you know, like I just mentioned earlier, I was primarily with the outfielders at lacrosse, but I just created this obsession with learning the hitting side of the game. And a lot of that had to do with like my playing career and the things that were difficult for me. And I just wanted to figure out the whys. You know, and it was crazy. I mean, to make money when I was at lacrosse, because I was a student assistant, I was substitute teaching at the local school districts. And it was perfect because there's a lot of dead time throughout the day. And like that dead time, like I'm on my computer and I'm researching all of like the hot hitting guys at the time to try to figure out my own philosophy and try to learn these things that I wanted to learn from my own playing career. So I wanted to get into the coaching side. And when I went into the office to meet with Bob Rents at Minnesota Duluth, he, he basically said that the hitters are going to be yours. You know, I want you to be able to coach. And it was a great environment to be in. I was able just to run wild with my ideas. Um, and the one difficult thing that I knew I was going to have to deal with with Duluth is I believe I was their third hitting coach That group of seniors. I was their third hitting coach in four years. So they've had constant turnover. So all I really wanted to do is like, I have these new ideas, these fresh ideas, these things that I've learned. I wanted to provide some real structure for them. And I did the research and I saw like the areas where they could definitely improve from the previous year. And we really attacked those areas. And um, I'm not attributing it. I'm telling you the players, I, I knew what I was walking into. I had a, a boatload of really talented guys. Um, I'm sure the structure helped. I'm sure you know, what was being taught to them helped, but we had a phenomenal year offensively. I, I believe we were third in the country in average and second in the country in home runs total in NCAA division two. Um, sometimes I get those backed up or mixed up, but it was a really great year and a great place to start. And I was very calculated. It's like, if I'm going to get my first opportunity as a hitting coach in, at the college level, this is the group that I want to be with. Um, so a lot of what I learned there was structure and Bob Rents is very, very good at, you know, uh, creating a very professional environment. So I learned how to be more professional, how to show up to work the right way, um, how to communicate the right way. And, but I give him a lot of um, credit in my development as well, because it's really great just like Chris Schwarz with the outfielders to find a guy that's just willing to let you go work. And he's not going to stand over your shoulder and question everything that you do. So I, I, I just, I really had these years to start my career and at the college level. 
to where I was able to develop the right way because, you know, I was able to quite honestly succeed and screw up. There's plenty of times where I did things that didn't work, you know, but it was all on my own prerogative. And I'm, you know, I'm very, um, I'm very interested in making sure that what I'm doing is right. And if I don't think it's right, I'll just throw it away and I'll throw it in the trash and we'll just move on to the next thing. So from there, so I spent one year there and I had full intention to go back. And then uh, Coach Davenport, I was coaching my second summer with the Madison Mallards in the summertime. And Coach Davenport called me from Madison College and asked, you know, what would you think about coming back home and being a part of this program? And always in the back of my mind, that's where I wanted to go back to because I knew even with all of these great environments I was just in where I could really run wild with my ideas and development, I knew I wasn't a finished product and there was a lot that I needed to learn still. And there's not a better place and a better environment to strictly learn the game of baseball than Madison College. And Coach Davenport is my number one mentor in terms of my career and the perfect guy to be around to continue to learn the game and, um, you know, build on those areas that, that you want to build on as a coach. So I went back uh, to Madison and spent several years there uh, knowing fully what I was walking into. So again, it was calculated. And the funny story with that is too, you know, I, I tell, I tell this often that even when he offered it, I wanted to make sure it was right. I knew it was right. I knew I wanted to go there, but I still asked people that would, you know, give me a straight answer what they thought. So I said, I can either stay here at division two and continue to be the hitting coach at Minnesota Duluth. I can go back to this junior college program that I played for that I know is really special. What would you do if you were me? And it had to be like seven out of 10 people that said, stay where you're at. You know, don't go Juco, don't go D2 to Juco. And, but the more that I processed it and the more that I thought about it, I, you know, no, no fault to them. They didn't know exactly what Madison college is and what the program is all about on a daily basis. So I didn't really listen to them. I, I went back and I'm telling you right now, especially with where I'm at now with the Rockies, it was the best decision I've made. Um, because it, I'm not even sure fully that the Rockies opportunity would have fully came about if I didn't make that decision to go back to Madison college. And, um, so yeah, I was at Madison for about, I think it was three and a half years. And then, um, was actually supposed to go to Xavier to be their volunteer assistant, got a lease, got an apartment, had it all figured out. And then uh, I get a phone call from Darren Everson with the Rockies. and He's like, not to make your life more complicated, but, um, I got to talk to you about something. I knew what he wanted to talk to me about. But the more I started asking him questions and figuring out like what this player development gig was all about in professional baseball, I knew it really fit my personality well, especially with what I just came from with Madison College, where it's all about the individual and, you know, getting a bunch of messy puzzle pieces and trying to put it together. That's what we get to do. Also with the Rockets, you're just dealing with a professional athlete, which is a little bit different, but it's, uh, it was, I'm very happy with where I'm at. And I, I love being a part of this organization and what I get to do on a daily basis. So um, there's been a lot of lessons learned along the way. Um, you know, like I said, lacrosse, Duluth was just the perfect two places to really figure myself out and not have somebody staring over my shoulder the whole time. 
And then at Madison, it was the perfect stop to just grow even more this knowledge base of the game in general. And then, um, you know, with the Rockies, here I am and uh, going into my my second full year should be my third, but COVID hit. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been I've been very fortunate and everybody's track is way different, but I've been very calculated and understood exactly what I was walking into, which would be my you know biggest suggestion for a lot of coaches when it comes to figuring out their own journeys. We appreciate you going through that timeline and all the lessons learned. Um, I do want to shift gears um, soon to kind of the high school player as most of our audience are high school coaches. But before I do that, of the stops that you've made, you right. It's like I said, Madison to lacrosse Duluth back to Madison. And then, you know, with the Rockies in your current role, like what is the biggest difference between like the levels? If you had to think about the biggest difference between where you're at now and the players you've interacted with, like, how would you answer that question? Oh, it's a great question. Um, it's funny. I mean, and I've told coach Davenport this, like I'm at the rookie ball level with the Rockies and, you know, we have guys anywhere from, you know, 18 years old to, you know, 23, you know, and a lot of the things that we're having to teach them on the field are the exact same things that we were teaching our guys at Madison college and all the other stops that I was at. You're just dealing with a different type of athlete, you know, a different type of baseball player. They have maybe more fine tuned skills and tools earlier. And it doesn't mean like the guys that I coach at Madison can't get there someday. They can, you know, um, but that's, that's like the main difference is that, you know, and I've had plenty of moments where I'm watching our guys with the Rockies and thinking of players that I've coached in the past and being like, they, they could fit here. Absolutely. They can do these things, you know? So it's really funny too. Cause when I was at Madison college, we had Dan Snyder come from Louisville and I believe he told coach D like, the margin of separation between the levels is so much smaller than we think, you know, there's hidden gems at every level of baseball, you know, thinking about college here, D3, NAIA, uh, D2, you name it, Juco, you'll find players that it's, it's, that's the great part about baseball is like, it's, it, at, you can find players everywhere and the opportunity is real. You just got to perform, you know, and, so the biggest, the, the, the most consistent thing is like, we're still teaching the game. We're still teaching the details. You know, it's not like all these guys that come to professional baseball, like they know perfectly how to do a double cut, you know, you know, so we have to, we have to really put our, and, I, and that's where I also really like the level that I'm at, because once you get to like high A, double A, triple A, like you're dealing with a more experienced, fine-tuned baseball player, like their growth and understanding of the game is more finite, you know, whereas the guys I'm dealing with, I still get to put my teacher's hat on and actually really teach the game of baseball. So um, does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. I just think about like, I picture you in rookie ball with a 17 year old who's never been to the country before and a 24 year old, you know, COVID senior out of a power five school. <laughs> and I got to imagine it's been, it, it's a, it's a, you know, mix of everything. So, yeah. Yeah. And like for us too, it's like, we're, we're unique. Cause you have that, you know, we have a lot of guys from the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, 
you have your American guys, especially when the draft happens, um, you know, and then on top of that, you also have rehab guys that come through the facility all the time, which is a great learning experience for our guys, especially if they've been in the organization or in professional baseball for a while, uh, because for the most part, they come in and they're willing just to provide their knowledge, you know, so we have to wear a lot of different hats where we're at just because we have our normal guys that we're trying to develop. And we have very strict like guidelines in terms of not strict, I should say, but we have guidelines of like what we want them to be able to accomplish by season's end. But then you have your rehab guys come in, you're in charge of keeping them healthy and getting them back on a roll so they can get back to their affiliate and, and play as soon as possible. So it's a very unique environment, but um, baseball is baseball, you know? So it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's really great. And another great place to start for me in professional baseball, because it fits, like I said, right into the realm of like exactly what I was doing at Madison college with our guys there. All right. Thanks for going off script a little bit there. I appreciate that. Um, so the majority of our high school our listeners are high school coaches like myself. And, you know, here's, I was in high school 20 years ago. You know, I know it's been a little bit for you as well. But the game has changed a lot in regards to the kid that's coming in. So let me give you a common scenario. You know, if it's Menominee Falls or Verona or a lot of the suburban school districts we're at is the rise of academy baseball and club baseball and the access to offseason training has exploded. Um, And here's what I often think about is as a high school coach and we get the, you know, we can coach the kids from mid-March until, you know, early June and they're coming in. A lot of them are coming in with a lot of uh, patterns and a lot of habits already. And, you know, parts of their swing are already developed. And we often talk as high school coaches about like, okay, you know, how do we navigate these waters because we have such limited access to them, knowing that, you know, in Wisconsin, we're going to have poor weather beginning of the season. We're going to be inside in a gym most days for practice. And then at some point the weather's going to unleash and we're going to play a lot of games. So like, I say all that, like put your hat on as in regards to if you were to take over a high school program, you're the next high school baseball coach at fill in the blank high school and you're running the offense. Like how would you, how would you run the offense at at a high school baseball program? Yeah, that's, it's a good, it's a great question. I'm just going to start with this. Like, you know, and I alluded to it earlier with my own experiences as a player you know, coming through high school, the explosion of the academies, you know, it's, it's a good thing in that our guys, our players in the state of Wisconsin, there's so many good players coming out of the state now. Um, And I think a big part of that has to do with the resources that are available to them to continue to work on their craft, you know, uh, being able to go to a place year round, that's a big, beautiful facility and actually swing and get some work in has been a great thing. Cause I remember when I was a kid or I was younger, it's like, it was hard to find a cage to hit in, you know? And, uh, we just had to do the best with what we had. I will say this though. And I think this is, I think there's probably a lot of high school coaches that can probably relate to this. And I have an Academy background and, you know, I worked at GRB for a while and very proud of the work that we did there. I thought we did things very well, you know, but I think, and this is not me blaming the academies. This is just an overall like thing that's kind of developed is that with the academies, you know, and 
they have a purpose, you know, their intentions are good in terms of trying to provide opportunity for their guys at the next level, you know, develop them, prepare them, get them off. Hopefully they get some school paid for and, you know, find a, a good school to, to go and, and compete at. But I do think it's kind of somewhat messed with the psyche of the player in terms of, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with coaches where it's like guys now, like they don't, they don't have to compete for as much, you know, they don't have to fight for as much, you know, when, when you're going into an, you know, a setting like that and people are, people know, I mean, you walk into those facilities and you see all the posters of the players and where they've gone. It's like, there's almost like a built-in expectation, which is not fair to the academies necessarily, but a built-in expectation that I'm going to get what I deserve by being a part of this program, you know? So where in reality, the way life works is you have to fight, you know, you have to earn what you get, you know? And I'm not saying that all kids don't do that. There are kids that do that, but it's harder and harder to find. It feels like that in today's day and age, kids with like a true chip on their shoulder, you know, feeling like they really have something to prove and like to earn and fight and do whatever they have to do, whatever it takes to get what they deserve. You know, so I think in general, the overall um, landscape of like the built in or of all these academies that exist now is, is just that players need to understand that there's no guarantees with anything like you get what you earn. And, you know, when you have players come into your program and they have a lack of understanding of this is how the real world works, you know, um, that takes a lot of time as a coach to try to develop that and have them understand that, you know, you're not coming to this program to get your poster on your wall. You're coming to this program to win games and develop and be a, the best student athlete that you can, you know? So you know, I'm trying to be careful with how I say, because I don't want the, I'm not trying to have this come off as like the academies are doing anything wrong. They're not, it's just kind of just a built-in expectation. I think a lot of times with the parents as well, that, um, you know, sometimes doesn't help the kid in terms of preparing them for how the real world works, especially when they walk onto a college campus. Um, but now that I'm done with that, um, in terms of, uh, you know, being a high school baseball coach in, understanding that the majority of the players have their own academies and their own people that they work with, you know, you want to try to do the best you can with the limited time that you have. And it's very limited to individualize it as much as possible, you know, and that's really tough to do even at the college levels. Um, you know, at the NCA levels, the coaches have very, uh, tight restrictions in terms of the amount of hours that they can work with their guys. But there's some coaches out there that work really hard at trying to build in the time to work with guys individually with what they specifically need. The, if you can find a way to do that, do that. You know, I, I'm not a big like one size fits all, but there are certain things that I feel like are certain absolutes that can be taught that should be focused on. You know, and one is the ability to land consistently well to get a good swing off. You know, when you look at snapshots of, of professional hitters, the best to ever do it, the position they're in when their front heel strikes, it's very eerily similar 
you know, I have this great collage of left-handed and right-handed hitters right at heel strike. And they, they almost look all similar, you know? So when I see that, I'm like, okay, that has to be an absolute. That, that's not by mistake. Right. But it's funny because I've worked with, I've done some camps and I've worked with a lot of high school to middle school age kids. And, you know, I bring up the concept of like, what does it mean to land well to get a swing off? And a lot of them can't answer the question. They have no idea. Right. So I think it's a part that gets kind of shoved off to the side and doesn't really get focused on as much. But when you actually dig deep and watch the video and study, you see that this is a really important concept how they land, like what they do prior to landing may all be different. But when that front foot hits, what position are we in? Can we get our barrel moving forward? Can we have a swing that's actually connected, you know, to use the space that's available to us on the plate to cover as much as possible of the field? So if I was a high school coach, knowing that they all have their individual guys, even if they have their individual hitting coaches, like, there ain't going to be a single player that's going to argue with you that landing well to get a good swing off is, you know, something that they shouldn't focus on, you know? So trying to find those areas the best you can that, you know, relates to everybody without just doing drills, like cert, like having like four drills that you always do. That's one size fits all that may not benefit every single guy, but how they land that benefits every single guy. Um, so <clears throat> let me just cut you off for a second. So when you say, like, I'm just trying to picture this when, you know, are you lining every kid up and like just checking their, you know, when they're, their landing position, when that foot strikes, are you just doing like a quick check each day? Like, how are you building that, that teaching moment in? Well, I mean, for me, like with our individual guys, like we'll have video and we'll just kind of watch the video for me. Like a lot of guys can land like decently well when you're just flipping a ball in underhand or they're hitting off a tee, but it's, what matters is when the game starts and the game speeds up a little bit, you know, I've had plenty of guys that, you know, when I'm flipping underhand, they look great, but I, it's kind of like a pet peeve of mine. It's like, I'm not in the business of developing guys that are really good cage hitters. I want guys that can hit at 7 PM, <laughs> you know, otherwise what good am I, you know? Um, so we just, we analyze the video and then yes, like when we're like if I'm in a camp setting, usually the first day of camp, and this is what Darren Everson also does with his camps is he gets all the guys spread out and he has them work into their landing position. And we just walk around and we, we talk and we teach, you know, we make some adjustments so they can feel it. But I think another huge component of it all is that a lot of these guys now, and I think a lot of it has to do with just like the crazy tech boom. And I'm not talking about like just the baseball tech. I'm just saying like our cell phones. Like this group of kids, they're very visual learners for the most part. So if you can show them what it looks like, and like I said, I got this awesome collage um, of left-handed, right-handed hitters. It's got to be like 50 hitters all at their landing spot, and it all looks the same. You can show them that, you know, then they kind of create this understanding of like, oh, this is really important. I got to work, try to get to at least something similar when my front foot hits. So yeah, you, you show them that you teach them that, and then you kind of figure out through their positioning and what their bodies want to do, what's going to allow them to consistently, you know, land in that spot every single time. And that in itself is, you know, movement exploration. You know, that's a really big part of being a good hitting coach is let the guys kind of experiment with different movements and figure out, you know, 
throw crap on the wall and if it sticks, then we're great. But if it doesn't keep throwing crap on the wall until it does stick. So um, that's probably the best way I could answer that, that question. Appreciate that. If that's absolute number one, like, do you have any other absolutes for your hitters? Uh, you're only as good as what you swing at. <laughs> so, you know, we get to a point a lot of times, especially me, I can get here too. Like I get, I get all geeked out on the art of the swing. And I don't think we have enough time to go into all of that detail, but you know, a lot of the parts that kind of get lost is, you know, what are we swinging at? What are we hunting? Um, you know, what is our in zone discipline? Like, um, you know, are we ready to always anticipate to get our best swings off? But a big part of it is, you know, as the game gets better, the margin for error gets smaller because the pitching gets better. So, you know, I remember like when I was at Madison college and I would go to high school games and recruit, you know, it's, you have to be aware of that because there's some pitchers out there that, you know, it's no fault to the high school. Like when I was a senior at Verona, I had to pitch because we didn't have much pitching, <laughs> you know? So it's like, you're seeing Oh, two, one, two hanging breaking balls being thrown in, you know, where guys can get away with a little bit more, but you know, that's a big part and a big component of what I pay attention to. It's like, you know, if a guy has a bad game and he's frustrated and the first thing he wants to talk to you about is what he's doing mechanically, the first question I'll ask is, well, backtrack here. Like, let's talk about what did you swing at? You know, how were the pitches that you swung at? And if there was a kid that just chased all day, then it's like, why are we talking mechanics? You know, you're, you're swinging at pitches that you can't do anything with. Or it could be a kid that's like, oh, oh, and he's swinging at a pitch down and away on the black which is hard for any hitter at any level to do anything with, but they're so over aggressive that they're swinging at that and they're getting themselves out. Those are huge teaching components or components of absolutes. That is kind of common sense. Like we just have to really focus on our uh, pitch selection and pitch discipline of like actually swinging at the right pitches. Are there things that, um, you do in the training environment to teach strike zone awareness or pitch location? There's a lot of things you can do. Um, you know, like I get, I get creative, you know, like a lot of times like guys, like they fear the breaking ball because they chase it a lot. Um, and a lot of times the reason they chase it a lot is because they're looking for it, you know? So building in environments, and this is what high school coaches can do too. It's just like, you know, I, I do a drill where it's like a two plate breaking ball drill and the plates are really close to each other. So you have your normal plate and then a plate that's just in front of it. And what I'll do is the front one, when they're at the front plate, it's more of like a hanging breaking ball. So I'm getting their eyes adjusted to what a hanging breaking ball looks like. And there's a certain way, train one way to do one thing of how we want to hit that pitch. And then when they back up to that plate, that's, I don't know, probably three feet, four feet behind it it's either going to be more likely a chase but every once in a while that machine's going to shoot one up to where it's one that they should swing at so i don't want to back it up that plate back i don't want to back that plate up so far that it's always a chase down i want them to always have a swing decision so i'll say to them like when you go to the back plate if it gives you a hanger or if it gives you something that you can get your barrel to the right way um and you don't swing then i know you're cheating the drill you're getting nothing out of the drill you know so that in itself kind of creates a competitive environment of what 
they need to be doing when they're in the game of like trusting their eyes, trusting their move, landing well, landing on time well, so that they can get those quick signals sent to their brain to get their best swings off. Um, but there's a lot of different things you can do also. You know, we work on, you know, being really good middle, middle of the plate on fastballs. And it teaches guys that if you can create a line out of the pitcher's hand and fastballs move different ways sometimes, right? You'll be a true four seam straight, maybe a two seam. They'll have a little bit of life at the end of it. That's always important to know, um, especially when you're trying to hunt that middle, middle fastball. But guys will start to understand, too, when they get really good on that line, the middle, middle, just off of it, they can still get to. Just in of it, they can get to. Um, so now you're opening up more parts of the plate. And the, what I would just say is, like, whatever you do and try to make the environments as challenging as possible – you know, especially with high school coaches and the very limited time that you have to get your guys ready to play, make it as game-like as possible. Um, try to incorporate a swing decision one way or the other with what they're doing. And um, mix BP, like it's really status quo, you know, but kids hate it. And there's a reason why they hate it is because it's challenging. It's difficult, you know, and we could talk about that too. It's just like, you know, as a, if I was a high school baseball coach or a hitting coach at the high school level, you know, I personally will never be the guy, especially with where the game's at with the pitching so good and there's a lot of swing and miss. I don't ever want to be the guy that has to have my hitters look for one speed and one pitch type. I want them to have adjustability. I want them to be able to control space when it comes to hitting. When I'm talking space, I'm talking east-west when you're looking at the plate and south to north like towards the middle of the field you know I want to cover as much of that as possible and if I was a high school baseball coach and this is very similar to what I do now when I'm working with my guys is when you can get them to truly be on the fastball and actually stay through it and hit the ball well to the opposite field then adjustability becomes a real thing with those hanging breaking balls and then when you can teach them to do that and you start mixing in the breaking balls with like mixed BP you'll slowly start to see them get more confident and more better at it in terms of uh, the production they're having with that actual drill, you know, but it teaches you a ton. I mean, if you have a guy that you're throwing fastball, he's all over it and you throw him a breaking ball and he's like spinning and falling down. There's a lot of reasons why that could be, but then it can kind of like train your eyes to look at the right things. It's like, is he truly landing? Well, you know, is he, is he landing and, losing his alignment and like burying his hands behind his body so that when he has to make his move to the ball, everything has to fly open. So now it's a breaking ball and he can't hold direction north to south to the middle of the field, you know, but then when the guys start to get the grasp of that and they're on the fastball and they can stay through it to the opposite field gap. And then you flip in that breaking ball and their barrel continues on that forward path. You know, they're landing to hit that fastball, but now they see the breaking ball and they can just continue to accelerate their swing forward and they're starting to flush it up and square it up. Then you're starting to deal with guys that are going to have a real chance of success up at the plate. And that's, that's fantastic. Cause I think you know, here's my take, at least on with the high school kid, like when they go hit, you know, with the, with their buddies, they're throwing BP fastballs down the middle. They're trying to swing out of their shoes, right? Like putting that in, you know, Programming that in our training environment as a coach seems like let's that's not game like at all, right? So where a mixed BP type is creating some competitiveness, it's creating more game like and creating some failure. 
And that's kind of one thing I'm catching um, a lot with you here is just like at what, how much failure do you build in? Like how much success do you want them to have in practice versus like what is too defeating? And I know that's probably a, a tough question. You know, each kid's different at each age, but like, what, you know, what does the failure rate at practice kind of look like in the cage? Well, I'll put it this way. Um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, with the Rockies, like we have, you know, objectives that we want to accomplish at each level. And a big part of our level at the rookie ball level is like get them hitting the fastball, right? If you can't hit, I saw a great tweet the other day. It's like, you want to play college ball, hit a fast or a high school fastball. If you want to play pro ball, always be on time and uh, hit the college fastball. You know, if you want to make it to the big leagues in the minor leagues, you better be able to hit the fastball, you know? So a big objective of ours was to get them to do that. And I kind of made a decision and I've developed a lot too. Um, you know, and a lot of it just has to do with like, get over your stubbornness, you know? And I remember me as a player, I hated the pitching machine. Like I hated it just like a lot of kids do, you know, but I made the decision with our guys that, you know, especially when we were getting ready to play a game, they were always going to hit off the pitching machine. So it was wild. I mean, with us all but one day, and I'm talking extended spring training, and then our whole regular season, all but one day, uh, we hit with a machine um, on field and in the cages. And then there would be certain days built in where we would just have our hitting in the cages and we could kind of put them through other objectives that are very important for on-field success it could be breaking balls it could be mixed bp with an actual arm um but we had a very detailed structure of how we went about things to help our guys with their development um and the funny story of that is that you know when we first started doing the machine work our guys hated it like hated it and i kind of force fed it a little bit and but what ended up happening is like they slowly started to figure it out like we had one of our draft guys come in and they just jumped right into our normal structure of on-field machine BP and he said to me it was like probably week three of him being there he goes is this pitching machine still at the same speed as like when we first show up I'm like yeah I never changed the dials he goes when we first showed up it literally looked like 105 he goes but now it looks like nothing so like we're training their eyes to actually see velo and spin you know and then our other guys that were with us the whole time that really hated it initially, you know, when they start playing in the games and they're starting to square up fastballs and they're starting to have that in-game success, which is what the whole objective is. Like, I don't, you don't need to be a great hitter in the cage. You need to be a great hitter on the field. Um, You know, we would have moments throughout the season where it was going to be on-field machine BP, but I would say to them, if you want arm BP, talk to us and we'll make that happen, you know, and start to give them a little bit more of an individualism type of approach, like kind of choose what you want. Nobody wanted our MVP, right? So they went from hating it to absolutely loving it. And if we didn't set up the machine, it was like, they, they didn't like it, you know? So you just have to kind of like build it in, but a huge part of like, I I have such a pet peeve of on-field RMVP. Um, if it's not challenging, if it's not game specific, you know, cause guys can get away with so much um, with the ball coming in at 45 miles per hour, 40 miles per hour, 
you know, they could have some serious issues with how they land, how they get their swings off, but they're still going to hit home runs. Right. But in their mind, they're feeding in this reality of like, Ooh, I'm right where I need to be. And then they get into the game and they can't get their swings off. Right. So I've really transitioned away from on-field arm BP and I've really adopted the machines. And I think it's had a really great success in terms of our guys being most prepared when the game actually starts. Um, so yeah, I would say make it as challenging as possible in it's how you communicate to your players. Like we'll say to our guys, especially if they're facing a machine and like, we're really pumping it up that day. It's not because we enjoy watching them fail, you know, but we'll say to them, if you take 10 swings off this machine, if you square up or you barrel up, whether it's on the ground or in the air, if you square up three of them, it's success. Right. And they understand that. Then they realize like, okay, this is, uh, this is okay. Like I'm not, you know, the fact that I'm getting my, my ass kicked out of seven of these is, is normal, you know, but then the game starts and they're in a much better spot to actually compete. So. All right. Appreciate that. So we've now hit two of your absolutes. Okay. Foot down strike zone awareness, you know, pitches that we actually swing at. Is there anything else that kind of fits into that absolutes category? Um, it, a lot of it depends on the individual. Um, but that's not the question. The question is the absolutes. Um, you know, I think an absolute two hitting, and I think this is where you're seeing a lot of the swing and miss is like, try to create a lens as a coach where you're understanding how valuable time is when it comes to the actual swing. So what I mean by that is like pay attention to how the barrel gets into the hitting zone. So when our guys make their move to the ball, I'm talking, so they've landed well and now they're starting their initial move to the ball. You want that barrel moving forward with that move. Right. And a lot of guys, the barrel spends a lot of time behind them as they start to rotate. So what I see a lot is I call it a stuck barrel. So it's like they've rotated pretty quite far with their bodies already to like try to get to the baseball, but the barrel you'll see like on video and snapshots that the barrels like literally still behind their body. The barrel has not started to move forward through the hitting zone. That's time. It's very valuable time, especially when you get to, you know, at the high school level, you're facing one of the best pitchers in the state or a guy that can throw in the nineties, like milliseconds as a hitter are so incredibly important. So that is an absolute of get your barrel moving forward on your turn. Um, how you get there with each guy may be different, but it's something to definitely pay attention to. And, um, you know, there's a reason why, there's certain kids that have a lot of success in high school. They can get away with a little bit more, but then when they get to college and professional baseball and the velocity is more consistent, you know, uh, the off-speed pitches are maybe a little bit better. That's when the game really starts to teach them some things in terms of, okay, what worked in the past maybe isn't going to work now, you know, and what, what, what kind of adjustments we have to make. And a lot of times with guys pay attention to how far they've rotated with their bodies and where the barrel's at. But if we can make our move or we can start our rotation to the ball and the barrel has like a, a direct 
forward move with that rotation. It's starting to move into the hitting zone and forward. Um, that's a really big piece to having hitters have success because then what ends up happening is that time that they typically spend behind them when the barrel's stuck, we're using that time now out front of our bodies. And um, that's really, really crucial, especially when it comes to hitting velocity and landing well to hit a ball the opposite field, but then having the adjustability out front on a hanging breaking ball where you don't have to slow up your swing. You can just continue to have it move forward. Um, that's a really hard thing to explain on a podcast, but hopefully it was good enough to where people have somewhat of a picture of what that looks like. Well, just when you think I got a, and I have another tough one for you. So I've, I've listened to you talk on some other shows before. And one thing I know you're passionate about is queuing if it's internal or external queuing. So maybe just go into that a little bit um, and maybe where you were and where you are now and where the value is in queuing hitters as a hitting coach. It, queuing is very, very important. Um, you know, and it's more so important, especially when we're making like a, a physical adjustment with what their bodies are doing to get better swings off. If you don't make like a queuing brain connection with that movement, it's really hard for them to maintain it. So like analogies are really powerful. Um, but I, I got better with queuing when I started to realize the concept. And I got this from Eugene Bleeker, who's with 108 Performance, that everything works and everything sucks, right? You just have to figure out what works for each individual. So there's some times where you may be queuing something that makes you want to vomit as it comes out of your mouth because it's like so far against maybe what you believe in, but if it produces the right movement, I don't care. Right. So, um, queuing is very important physically when it comes to making changes so that they can always have like this brain connection to the movement. So it can actually kind of, you know, maintain and hold. Um, but queuing is also really big, like where you're talking about, like that's internal queuing, but then we also have external queuing which is um, very big when it comes to like, when it's time to compete, you know, um, you know, like a cue, like if you're trying to tr uh, teach a hitter how to be adjustable to off speed pitches, you say to like land, land well enough to where you can hit a ball a hundred miles an hour to the opposite side infielder. That's a, that's an external cue to get them to hopefully land better to have, their space work to them to all parts of the plate and different speeds, you know, um, knock down the hitter's eye, you know, uh, when you're facing velo, like you have to figure out sometimes guys have to think pull side gap when they're facing like hot velo, otherwise their barrel head will never get out in time. Um, some guys you can still stay on the hitter's eye, you know, so that's where cueing becomes very individualistic of understanding what makes sense to each guy, but that's where we have to be educators and we have to be teachers, but what we say doesn't always go. And I think there's also a problem with cueing, you know, that a lot of guys cue um, certain parts or like what they view as absolutes, like a cue of, I'm sorry for anybody out there that believes in this, but like squish the bug is probably the worst cue that's ever been invented with baseball because they think it produces the right look of what you see from professional hitters, but it completely screws up how our bat our bodies are naturally supposed to move. Um, so it's like really treat it from an individual standpoint. And what I would say also is like have conversations one-on-one -on -one with your players 
because although a cue may make sense in your head, it may, may not make any sense for them. You have to understand what their perception of it is. And I wish I could come up with an example. Um, you know, if you had a guy like standing in the batter's box and you said, Hey, take one step back, they might move one step towards the, the catcher, or they might literally back straight up, you know, out of the batter's box, you know? So that's what I mean by like what they perceive that comes out of your mouth is all different for each, each guy. And sometimes when you have those conversations with them and you're like trying to explain to them what you mean by your cue, they may say like, well, actually I like this more, you know, and then note that, take that down and make sure that's what always comes out of your mouth with that hitter. Um, and that's where just extra effort and extra attention to detail with, with each individual is incredibly important when it comes to uh, helping them maintain success long-term. Well, I asked this next question kind of days before you and I head down to Chicago for the ABCA convention, and this will air, you know, after we're back, but, you know, high school coaches have a small amount of money to spend, right? You know, we're not going to buy a track man and some other, the, you know, more expensive tools, but if you had to advise a high school program, like, what supplies should we in, invest in to, to improve our hitters? Uh, do everything you can to get a pitching machine. Um, and it doesn't even have to be like, I actually like hack attacks. A really, I, I love hack attack brand. Um, but I'm, I actually prefer their mini hack attacks that are cheaper than the big wheeled ones. Um, and you can manipulate it and there's conversion charts everywhere. The spin of the ball will still be really good out of the machine. Uh, sometimes overly challenging, which is okay. Um, but you can find the conversion charts of like putting the machine at 45 feet, you know, and it comes out if you have like a pocket radar or radar gun and figure out what below you have coming out of the machine, you can kind of figure out what's getting them more towards like, you could have it set for 85 miles per hour reaction time. You could have it set up for 90 plus reaction time. Um, but that would be, and I know how expensive they are. I tried to get my own this off season and it's not quite in the books yet. So, um, but I would really advise, um, to do that. If you want to make this more game-like and challenging for them, um, in terms of the tech, um, uh, fully understand, you know, we're fortunate. We have Rapsodo. I love Rapsodo, but it's really expensive and it's tough, I think, when you guys, like at a high school level where you have such limited time, you can get good information from it, but it's really hard to structure something off of the Rapsodo to make like immediate impact. Um, it's really great when you're working one-on-one -on -one with the guy and you can kind of slow it down. But Blast, um, I, there's a lot of high school programs that use Blast. Um, I, am, I really like Blast. I'll just say this to all the coaches out there. Just do not chase the metrics. Like you can fall into that rabbit hole really fast. You know, like they have the three overall scores of plane connection rotation. It's not about being green in all three. You need to figure out what you're chasing, what you're competing against with the actual true metrics that can show up, you know, and I'll give an example. Like I was working with a guy, um, you know him, Nick, <laughs> Nick Isle. And we were working on trying to get his, uh, um, we were working on a very difficult adjustability drill where he's literally trying to hit balls on the white line closest to his feet. It's a movement profile drill to help him when the ball is actually thrown on like the inner third. And 
the only two metrics that I pay attention, I shouldn't say only two, but rotational acceleration, actually understanding what that means is if I'm throwing off speed pitches and his rotation and rotational acceleration average like really dips, then I know he's slowing up his swing. I don't want him to slow up his swing. And just for the coaches that the rotational acceleration is not overall rotation. It's just like the initial movement of like your back hip of like getting your barrel in the hitting zone. Um, so that's really important to understand. But then we also paid attention to his vertical bat angle with that drill, because when I'm throwing balls low and on that white line, his vertical bat angle should start getting into like negative 45 to negative 50. Right. This is all stuff that I did not understand. I had to be taught it. Right. So I think there's a lot of stuff out there where we just kind of jump into it. We don't have like that full understanding of like, what can we use this for? That's where you have to be really careful. And it just takes a lot of time and effort to figure out exactly, you know, what are we uh, chasing here? And for any coaches out there, I'd be, if that's something that interests them, I can get geeked out in these conversations for a long time. You can, you know, DM me on Twitter or however you can reach me and we can, I'd be more than happy to, to kind of go more in depth with that. But blast can be a very, very useful if it's used the right way. Um, but there's certain things where it can also be a very dangerous trap if you allow yourself to fall into that. So. All right. Last, last question for you on like the high school hitting side. So I think if you walked into a lot of high school baseball practices, you know, you'd walk inside, you would see a couple cages down from the ceiling on a gym floor. You would see, right. Someone throwing a BP, uh, a T station, a flip station, maybe a bunting station. Like if you, if you can picture your traditional, you know, indoor setup, um, like, how would you blow that up? Like, how, what would your, I don't know, probably don't have the same answer every day. So it's a tough question, but like, how would you best use that indoor space? Um, you know, just think of a team of 15, 15 hitters. Yeah, I, um, you know, it, it's kind of hard because I don't know the exact like time frame. I know it's very small that you guys have to get your guys ready to play for that first game. Um, you know, and like I mentioned earlier, if you have the ability to do some individualistic work, you know, and I think a good way to approach that also is throw your, like try to set your ego aside as much as you can, because it can be frustrating. It's like, you want to help these guys. You feel like you can help them, but they all have their own hitting instructors. They've all been through this other stuff. Ask them the questions of like, what have you been working on? What works well for you? And then be a guide to help them with that stuff. And as you do that. Now they start going like, okay, this guy's got my back. You know, this guy um, isn't trying to start from phase one with me because he knows that I've been working and I've been doing certain things. Um, and once you have that trust, you know, and you're starting to help them and with guiding them in the right direction with these things that they've been working on, then you can, I think, can start to like make your own impact to what you think is going to be really good for them. But it's all about how you approach it initially. If you just kind of come in right away and say, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And it goes completely against all these things that they've been working on. You know, you're going to lose them with a snap of a finger because um, kids are smart, you know, and, you know, a lot of them have been uh, had a lot of different things thrown at them. But so if you can fit that in, that's great. But, you know, for me, if, if you have very limited time to get your guys ready, I would, start right away with, you know, the competition game-like based 
type training. Um, whether you have a machine or if it's mixed BP, um, you know, getting them, whether machine or arm to like really have some pride in landing to smoke a ball, the obstacle gap. And I'm not saying like little flare ducks to the line. I'm talking about hitting rockets, right. And have them understand that like, until you can do that, right. Then, you know, having success with whatever may be thrown at you is going to be a really tough ask. It's going to be really tough for you to do. Um, and then I would just continuing to teach guys how to compete. I think is really important. Even our guys, the Rockies, um, the young guys that we have any competition based thing that they have to do where it's challenging and more game like you, it just seems like you get more out of it. Um, so that's kind of how I would approach it. It's not like the perfect answer. Um, you want, and then what I would also say too, is like, I get like frustrated when there's like guys standing around and we're not getting work in with the time that we have. So like T work is fine, right? I'm not a huge advocate of T's. I like to have a moving baseball as much as possible, but if it means that guys can get more swings in, that's good. That's fine. Um, you know, but you know, try to have T drills that are not like you were saying earlier, they don't just put the ball down the middle and work on something that you should probably have been able to do since you were six years old, you know, like let's work on, let's work on something really specific off the T. Um, you know, whether it's like, you know, putting the ball in the inner fourth and trying to create ball flight towards like the middle of the field, which would tell you that the barrel's actually staying through the ball a little bit more, um, you know, using another thing I like to do is like use tees as like constraints of forcing their bodies to do something very specific. Cause you know, if you have a guy that has a hard time of, you know, if you have like a blast sensor on them or you can just see it with your eyes and they're hitting a lot of balls on the ground and their like attack angle is very negative. Like it's just like they're chopping wood down on the ground, put a tee on a chair by like in front of their front leg and, and put it as high as you can and tell them don't hit the tee on your finish. Right. And then you'll actually start to see their barrel working more up through the ball. Um, stuff like that can be very productive. And then when you're actually in the cage, whether it's mixed BP, make it as game like as possible, as competitive as possible and start getting their eyes adjusted to actual velocity. Um, but I will also say this, don't probably at that level, like, with the Rockies, it's very rare that we see a guy that's throwing like under 91 miles per hour. Uh, and if we do, it's typically a rehab guy that's been in minor league baseball for about six to eight years that can throw like five pitches for strikes. <laughs> so those guys are actually the, the toughest to hit. But don't do it where it's like you're just constantly feeding them like 95, right? You know, build them up to it. Like you can start slower, right? And have them get confident with it off the machine then slowly ramp it up but then go back to slower you know we want to have the ability to be consistent with all different types of speeds but you know uh and then also breaking balls like just get their eyes see and spin um different types and shapes of breaking balls a left-handed 12-6 a slur uh sliders the hitters hate sliders i hated sliders um you know and just try to get their eyes as adjusted as possible to what they're going to actually experience and see in the game I think that's probably the easiest way that you can approach it with the time that you have. That's fantastic. Well, I won't keep you too much longer, but I do got two more things for you. One is like, um, 
I love asking this question. I think I probably stole it from Jonathan Gellner, but like, what is something that you believe in that others would disagree with you on? Like, is there something philosophically or on the hitting space or in leadership or in coaching where, I mean, you're not the only one who does it, but you might be in the minority of believing that. Yeah, I'm, I love this question. And I, uh, like, here's the answer. Everybody's got to hear me out. So um, my answer is, Two-strike hitting is overcoached. Now, everybody just went, what? You know, but um, the reason I say that is, um, is because I think we focus on the wrong things when it comes to what makes hitters really good with two strikes. And we have certain things that we track and that we um, look at. But my belief is that the less we can get to two strikes, we're probably going to be better two strike hitters. So we spend a lot of time. It's not just two strike hitting, like, you know, hitting runs and stuff like that. Like I believe that every at bat, every pitch is situational hitting. It just depends on what's happening at that time in the game. But I'm more about focusing on the things that are actually happening that are leading us to get to two strikes often. So if you have a hitter that's getting the two strikes all the time, chances are he's not going to be a very good two strike hitter because he's there all the time. So what I'm saying is kind of flip the thought. So I mentioned earlier that I'm not the type of hitting coach that wants to create hitters that have to guess the perfect speed and the perfect pitch type to have success. I want guys that can be always on the fastball, their best fastball to put themselves in the best position to hit their off speed pitch, the pitch that they can get over consistently the reason we spend so much time focusing on two strike hitting is because we want our hitters to become more adjustable with two strikes but in my opinion it's like let's be adjustable from the oo count and then we'll start getting the two strikes less okay so certain things you can focus on are are we getting the two strikes because we're swinging and missing at pitches over the plate that we should be hammering okay so instead of like just having them work on their two strike hitting, I'm going to focus on them, you know, putting them in a training environment where they're going to start squaring up those pitches if they're missing those fastballs over the plate and start getting more flush contact. Is it a guy that's chasing all the time to get the two strikes? Okay, now we're going to do some pitch recognition drills to focus on, you know, limiting the chase percentage of how much times you're chasing to get the two strikes. And if you can start withering that number down of how many times they get the two strikes, and you can start developing more of a hitter that's good prior to getting two strikes, their two strike hitting becomes so much better because they're there less often. So, um, you know, and I think it also fits in the, the mindset of, you know, it's the verbiage and we're talking about cueing that we use a lot of time with two strikes too, like protect, you know, it creates like this fear induced environment and, it happens so many times where a kid will get to 0212, you know, and he's just battling his, his ass off. He's spoiling, he's spoiling, he's spoiling. And everybody's like, way to go, Timmy. Like, nice job. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, he should be at a 3 2 count. Those were all balls. Right. So the reason I kind of like go with that mindset is, you know, if we can teach our hitters how to be really good prior to getting to two strikes, when they get to two strikes, it's just another count. You know, not much else is changing. 
you might have to expand a little bit if you know that the ump's like giving a little bit off the plate or whatever. But at that point, it just seems like, you know, it, it's nothing overbearing. And it's something that I've been already doing since the first pitch of this at bat. It's not like I have to change everything now that I just got the two strikes. Um, so I just challenge coaches to kind of think of it in that realm of, instead of spending so much time on your two strike hitting prepare and help your guys with what they're doing, even before they get to that count to have more success. And you start to see guys that um, not only can handle those two strike counts a little bit better, but you know, they're creating more hard contacts on pitches that they should drive before they even get there. Love that answer. All right. So my last question for you is about professional development. Obviously like you've, spoken in length about just your evolution as a hitting coach. And I know five years from now, 10 years from now, you'll be constantly evolving, but like what resources should coaches go to? Like, where would you, you know, advise coaches to go to find some fantastic resources? Because as you know, if it's Twitter or this service or that service or this clinic, like there's, there's information everywhere. Like if you had to push coaches down a certain Avenue, where would you take us uh, for a, for professional development? Well, I'll just preface this by saying that um, the most, the most powerful development you're going to have is your own curiosity. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of people out there and I, I get texts all the time. It's even like some former players that I used to coach. They're trying to get the coaching and they like want the cliff notes to get there really fast. And I'm, maybe it's my ego kind of like kicking in, but I'm like, man, you don't know how many hours and failures I've had to even get to what I believe is a good hitting philosophy, you know? So you have to, you have, man, like thinking about like my own career and like when I was talking about earlier of like this hitting obsession that I got into, um, there's things that I was totally into back then where I look back now and I look through my notes that I was writing down. And I'm like, man, that's garbage. <laughs> like it just doesn't fit anymore. But at the time I thought it was great, but we all have to go through that. Right. And, but just realize the amount of time and sacrifice that it takes to actually be willing to go through something like that. You're, and I always say to our hitters too, like, especially when they want to get, you know, make adjustments quickly. Like they all want to be great on the field. It's like, I'll use the analogy of like, don't be Google. Like I can go on Google and I can type in something and I'll get 65 million results in 0.01 seconds. Like becoming a good coach. And I still have a long way to go. You're right. Like five years from now, 10 years from now, I'll probably feel the same exact way. It's just like, wow, like look how far I've come. Um, you know, so it just, it's a long trek. And I'll say this, like there is a lot of information out there. You know, once you have like a very narrowed focus of, what you want the end goal picture to look like, then things really start jumping out at you. Um, I heard Kobe Bryant say at one time, it's like when he was younger, he, all he could focus on was becoming the best basketball player that he could. And he said, when you have like that mind frame and you have like that type of focus level, like the universe becomes your library and like all these different things start jumping out at you. And I do think there's value in everything, you know, but you just have to be really careful with what you're, what you're looking at. Like if, if any of these coaches, I'm, you said this is going to air after the ABCA convention, 
it's not about going to that convention. I was that guy the first year where it's like, I'm taking every single note of every speaker. And it felt like almost like when I got back to the school, it's like I was starting from phase one. It's not about that at all. If you have a really clear picture of what the end goal of what you want is. So um, I preface it with that. Um, but there are a lot of really good resources out there. Um, I think a lot of people, if they're familiar with me from previous podcasts or whatever else, um, maybe my Twitter, I really like the work that 108 Performance does. Um, they kind of, there was a moment in my career where I felt a little bit stuck of like all this information that I had and I needed to find like a pathway to like kind of bring it all back together and I got Eugene Bleeker's book, Old School versus New School, and it it really propelled me into kind of understanding the human body and natural movement and, you know, training environments that help players um, succeed. Um, so their stuff is really great. Their website's good. Um, Joey Cuna with the farm system, I think he he throws out a lot of really good stuff out there that he's a former 108 guy. So there's a lot of similarities in terms of like what's important to him versus what's important to them. Um, Doug Latta, I think a lot of people know he's had a ton of success. He's worked with a lot of really great players. Um, you know, in terms of like I was talking about earlier, of like a swing that works from south to north and like the initial move and like getting the barrel to move on our initial move forward. He's great with a lot of the stuff that, that he posts and a lot of stuff that he teaches. Um, there's a university of Maryland, uh, I really like him. I think he's great. Their hitting coach and his Twitter handles, Maryland made hitting. Um, he does a lot of great stuff. And he's like one of those like division one coaches that you can tell he actually really tries to individualize it for each player. And he'll post some really good content of like some of the stuff that he's working on with his guys. Um, Craig Hyatt, everybody knows about like Craig won't get overly like preachy about details of the swing, but just the, the videos that he posts on his Twitter page, it's like an educational library for you to kind of like dig in and compare different hitters and try to find those similarities of like how they're moving. Um, that's where even with all of these different, you know, resources that I'm talking about, he like those type of videos is where I really started to explode and kind of come up with my own ideas just by studying. It's just like, I felt like I was in a classroom on Twitter of just watching um, some of the best hitters move and um, that's where you should spend a lot of time is kind of try to do it on your own also of just trying to come up with those pieces but um, Trey Hannum um, he's come a long way I, I really like where he's at right now and what he preaches and like some of the stuff that he does with his guys he's big uh, with machine work also um, he posts a lot of great content um, on base you a lot of guys know about they'll post some good stuff of just understanding the body and the sequencing and like what that actually means um so like there's a lot of stuff out there that you can search um but the last thing i'll say is just be cautiously curious because there's also a lot of stuff out there i'll say it this way if you're hearing somebody say something the game's been around forever Right. And if you hear somebody saying something that's never been said before and it's their main bread and butter, I immediately have a red flag that goes up in my head of like, OK, why has this never been said before? Why has this never been a part of the game before? There's a reason for it. It's because it's a brand new concept that's going to latch a whole bunch of people onto what they're doing. Right. So um, 
just be cautiously curious of what you're looking at. But like I said, there is value in everything. You just have to have a very narrowed focus of what you think the end picture is supposed to look like. And there it is. Huge thank you goes out to Trevor Burmeister for taking time out of his day. And he just goes, I told you. Like, he just, you let him go. I mean, we could have gone for much longer. We almost went an hour and 20 minutes to begin with. There's just so much information there, all right? And the, the question I really wanted to dig into, like, is, you know, the majority of our listeners are high school coaches. And we have a lot of limitations, but we also, you know, we get our guys in our season. We want to maximize time with our players. So, you know, what would he do with a group of high school kids? And I love this question for him because, you know, yeah, he works for the Rockies and he's got a tremendous amount of resources, but he works with young players. And not so long ago, he was working with college players that are 18, 19, 20 years old. And he was working at GRB in Madison. So he knows the high school scene so well that I think there's so much here for high school coaches to take in. Obviously, in other levels of baseball, too. Um, in the show notes, I am going to attach his social media and ways to contact him because he's been so generous um, with his time and his knowledge, and he just loves baseball in the state of Wisconsin. So really appreciate you tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed the episode as much as I did, and then uh, we'll hear back uh, on next Tuesday for, for, for Game 2. Until then, have a great rest of your day.